Hello and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I know there are a lot of choices out there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. I'd love to know what you want to know about Cubs baseball. Welcome into episode 10, Double Digits. I can't thank you enough for continuing to share your time with me. In today's episode, I take a look back at how this Cubs team fell so far so early, how they've managed to finish strong, and then I lay out some paths for improvement as the Cubs head into the offseason. Will this be another offseason ending like a Chicago Bears drive and another punt? Or could we see a lineup with star power next year? Let's get into it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. How about them Cubbies? It's been an amazing week for the Chicago Cubs. But first, let's take a step back and look at where this team came from. Coming into the season, I was largely in agreement with Jed Hoyer. I didn't think this was a tanking season. I knew that success was going to mean threading a needle to an extent, as the team was clearly not deep enough to compete for a championship. But I thought there were enough pieces there to let them contend in what appeared to be a weak National League Central and also compete for the expanded wildcard spots. This podcast didn't exist yet, but my expectation for the season was that they'd make a run at 500 and ultimately land between 75 and 85 wins, depending on how things went. If they stayed healthy and most things broke well, then they could compete. And if a bunch of injuries and or poor performances kind of dictated the season, they'd be on the low end of that with a chance for a real dumpster fire. That 85 win target did land about where I expected it to. The Cubs would have basically been the Brewers this year. They'd be out of the division race but only very recently, and they'd be right there fighting with Philly for the last wildcard spot. They would absolutely be playing meaningful baseball in late September. Unfortunately, after a couple decent weeks, the wheels fell off early. Marcus Stroman and Drew Smiley missed much of the first half. Wade Miley didn't even hit the 20-inning mark until September, and Cub legend Kyle Hendricks has been hurt much of the year and pitching injured and ineffectively when he has been out there. Adbert Alzali missed most of the season until just the past couple weeks, and Alec Mills was also hurt most of the year. On the offensive side, it wasn't any better. In fact, it might have been worse. Jason Hayward continued to struggle. We learned that Chicago wasn't going to continue to be the Schwindy City, and Rafael Ortega was not the answer at center field. Nick Madrigal couldn't stay healthy in almost every veteran bench play, except for Jan Gomes, was a complete whiff. There were positives, but I'll get to those in a minute, as those players have absolutely driven the success in the second half. When you look at a team with what appears to be a potentially good but thin pitching staff, some unknown bullpen arms, and line up hoping that some guys from last year weren't flukes, you see a team riding on a razor's edge. So much went bad for the Cubs early that they were largely out of any realistic postseason contention by May, and maybe that's being generous. They weren't just losing, they were getting pounded. They finished April losing 9 of 11 and then opened May by losing 6 of 8. In June, they lost 10 in a row, including a series sweep in the Bronx where the Yankees crushed a batter pitching staff by a total score of 28-5 to in three games, which was then followed up by a series in San Diego where the Cubs gave up 12 and 19 runs on consecutive days. The Cubs were not close. When a game was close, they'd lose it in extra innings, and when it wasn't close, it was almost never the Cubs on top. The Cubs limped into the All-Star break with a win against the Mets, but that win ended a nine-game losing streak. The day before that last win, the Cubs were a season-worst 23 games under 500 at 34-57 and 15.5 and games out of first place. 
They were on pace to finish 61 and 101, and with a sell-off looming at the deadline, it seemed like the Cubs could go way beyond 101 losses. I've been watching Cubs baseball for 40 years since I was about eight, and the Cubs have put a ton of gray in my beard for sure. But only one time with all those awful teams, and I'm looking at you, 1986, 1997, and 2013, only one time did the Cubs lose 100, and that was a 61-101 and season in 2012, Theo Epstein's first season with the Cubs. Before 2012, you have to go all the way back to the 1960s when the Cubs lost 103 games each in 1962 and 1966. This Cub team seemed a virtual lock to push for maybe the worst record in franchise history. It seemed the Cubs were going to be starting lineups featuring Jonathan VR, Jason Hayward, and an old Andrelton Simmons for the rest of time. But they didn't. In my sixth episode, I talked a lot about the Cubs raising the floor of talent on this team, and it started in late July. They DFA'd Matt Swarmer and then Daniel Norris. Then in August, they cut ties with Simmons and sent Schwindel down for what proved to be the last time. Jason Hayward went on the injured list for what would prove to be the rest of his time with the Cubs. Over the course of the second half, the Cubs would move on from Schwindel, Ortega, Simmons, Hayward, and Michael Hermosillo, and give much more playing time to guys like Christopher Morel and Nelson Velazquez. They got Seiya Suzuki back, and before getting hurt again, Madrigal had a hot stretch. The offense has not been strong, even recently as they've played well, but there's no doubt that getting more of the young guys in the mix and taking a flyer on Fran Mil Reyes from the Guardians has given this club a completely different vibe. They're playing with more excitement and energy, and they've been a lot of fun to watch. This last homestand at Wrigley was fantastic baseball. They swept the Phillies and probably would have knocked them out of the playoffs if Milwaukee was at all playing with a pulse. And they handled the Reds the way you would want a better team to handle a lesser team. I already did a goodbye segment on Wilson Contreras before the trade deadline, so I won't go into great detail here. But he played what may have been his last home game at Wrigley on Sunday. It was a really cool moment when David Ross sent Rivas out to run for him in the bottom of the eighth so that Wilson could get his walk-off moment with the fans. On a side note, I mentioned it before, but I'm still bitter. The Cubs did not give KB and Rizzo that same moment last year when they were out of the lineup on their last home game at Wrigley. The Cubs also said goodbye to Jason Hayward. Jay Hay has been a lightning rod for Cubs fans for years now, but I'll always remember him fondly. People hate the contract, and that's fair, but it was market value at the time. The Cardinals even reportedly offered him more, but he chose Chicago. He came in as a 26-year-old guy with what seemed to be a still-developing bat and an elite glove. As Jay Hay himself said, he didn't play to the contract, but I do believe him when he said his focus was always on winning. From the day he said he would upgrade David Ross's 2016 hotel rooms to suites on his own dime as a thank you for the mentorship Ross gave Jay Hay in Atlanta when he was a young player, through the speech during the rain delay in Game 7 of the World Series, and all the way around to this season, you never hear a bad word about Jason Hayward the teammate, or Jason Hayward the leader, or Jason Hayward the mentor, or Jason Hayward the pro. People look at his speech in a variety of ways, but I think it's pretty clear that he had the year of the team in 2016. And even though his hitting was not what anyone wanted it to be, himself primarily, he was a guy that was respected and listened to in that clubhouse. He actually put up league average seasons in 2018 and 2019 before actually having a great but shortened 2020, where he posted a 131 WRC+. But the last two years have just been dismal. They've been the worst of his career. That contract and all that comes with it had to have been a burden. I wish Jay Hay well. Hopefully he can catch on somewhere next year and finish out his career in a positive way. And then someday, I hope he finds his way back to Wrigley as a coach or a member of the front office. He's the kind of dude you want to have around. He just hasn't been the guy you want in the starting lineup the last couple of years. So back to the current Cubs. 
since that bleak July day when the Cubs fell 23 games under 500, they've played largely good baseball and at times very good baseball. They're 39 and 29 since that day, and they've now locked in a season with fewer than 90 losses. Losing 85 plus isn't anyone's goal, but from where they were to not lose 90? Hell yes, I'll take that. What's driven this run is starting pitching. Cubs starters are third in baseball since the All-Star break with a 295 ERA, trailing only the Dodgers and the Astros. The staff as a whole is fifth in the game with a 334 ERA. The Cubs only gave up six runs total in the undefeated homestand. The pitching has been fantastic. Stroman has been pitching exactly like the guy they thought they signed, and Drew Smiley has thrown really great baseball, especially in the second half once he came back from injury. Justin Steele was great before getting hurt, and recently acquired Hayden Wesneski has been a bit of a revelation. Maybe the most surprising guy, though, has been Adrian Sampson. Sampson's been up and down with the Cubs before, but this year he's been particularly incredible. He's posted a sub-3 ERA in the second half, and he'll start the finale against Cincinnati. And he just goes out there, start after start after start after start, giving the Cubs quality innings. It's not the most dominating performances. He doesn't strike out 12 guys in six innings. He just gets outs. It's probably unlikely that he'll start next season in the rotation if the Cubs do what they're largely expected to do in the offseason. But he certainly played his way into the Cubs' plans for 2023. He could serve in a lot of roles. He, he'll be a depth starter. He could pitch out of the bullpen. He's a very valuable guy to have around, and he's been really impressive this season. So what exactly does all this mean? After the last successful run of Cubs baseball, it's pretty hard to really be excited about 85-plus lost seasons. But as I've said, this was a rare season for the Cubs to be able to take some time and answer questions on a lot of guys. It's frustrating for the fans, but they had a lot of guys last year like Rafael Ortega and Frank Schwindel who really posted really good numbers in the second half. It made sense to... Give, bring them back and see what they can be. Can they be a productive piece and be a relatively cheap part of a turnaround? As it turns out, Ortega and Schwindel turned out to be no answers, but the Cubs did discover some things this season. They found Christopher Morrell. Nico Horner proved that he could play an excellent shortstop, and Ian Happ finally put together that full season of excellence that I think everyone's been waiting for. He knew he could do it. I think a lot of fans knew he could do it. He just hadn't done it. Now he has. Seiya Suzuki had his struggles, as expected, coming over from Japan, but he heads into the final series of the year with a 342 WOBA and a 121 WRC+, and maybe most importantly, confidence. In a media session this weekend, Seiya talked about his growing confidence. Quote, numbers-wise, I feel like I'm not satisfied. I feel like I can do a little bit better, but I think the most important thing is I'm getting used to life here, and that's going to be a huge benefit for me next year, baseball-wise too. I'm excited for what I can do next year, end quote. I love hearing that from Saya. While team leader Nico Horner has been talking about playing to a strong finish to show free agents that this is a team on the rise. These guys want to win. They know they want to win. They know they need more help. And I think everybody's going to be ready uh, for a bigger rebuild in the offseason. So where does this leave the Cubs now? The rest of this particular podcast episode will focus on the offense. There's also a lot to discuss with the pitching staff. But outside of a brief mention later in this episode, I will save that for a future episode. This year, the Cubs are a team that increased its contact rate over last year by about 10%. That was a stated goal, and they've done it. But they're still striking out too much. They're 22nd in baseball, striking out 23.8% of the time. They're 20th in WRC Plus at 97, and 16th in baseball in Woba at 307. They're a below-average offense without nearly enough pop, so where does it make sense to improve? 
I'm going to look primarily at WRC plus as an easy way to judge offensive production in a normalized way. Again, a reminder, WRC plus is weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average and being above 100 is great and being below 100 is not so great. This year, the Cubs have been above average at about two and a half borderline three positions. They've been above average at catcher, largely because of Wilson Contreras. They've been above average in left field because of Ian Happ. And at shortstop, the Cubs are technically 14th in baseball at a 94 WRC+. But Nico Horner has a 106 WRC+. This position was absolutely wrecked by ridiculously terrible performances from Simmons and VR in the first half of the season. I'll add right field to this list as well because the Cubs season numbers have this position below average. But that's largely weighed down by the time missed by Seiya Suzuki, who's been, as I mentioned earlier, he's been very strong when he's been out there. Contreras is heading towards free agency, so if if he does leave, the Cubs are basically only above average in three positions. When you look around the rest of the diamond, where do they need help the most? First base and second base will really stand out. Cub first baseman offensively have posted a combined WRC plus of 85, which is just awful. That's good for 25th in baseball. The second baseman have been ever so slightly better at a WRC plus of 86 and a 22nd ranking in all of baseball. If Nick Madrigal could be healthy and hit like he did with the White Sox and then in August this year, he'd up that significantly. But after missing most of two seasons with leg injuries, it'd be pretty short-sighted to just ink him in for another 150 games at second base. First base appears to have Matt Mash Mervis coming after hitting 36 home runs in the minors this year. But he's only put up that production for this one single year, and he played across three levels this year. That's a really fast rise, and it'd be a lot to expect for him to just walk into Chicago next year and start hitting bombs in Wrigley. Unless he's just crushing balls all through spring training, it would seem likely for him to start the year at AAA and see what happens. If the Cubs make no moves here, that would likely leave first base in a platoon between some mix of Alfonso Rivas, Patrick Wisdom, and P.J. Higgins. Rivas has hit better of late and has the best glove, but he was seriously disappointing for most of the season, so we'll see. Third base is another place to look for improvement. After posting a combined 94 WRC+, which was good for 21st in baseball, Patrick Wisdom did show that he could improve his strikeout rate significantly, but his power did drop a little bit this season. Christopher Morrell may be an answer here, as this is his natural position. So he and Wisdom may split time here, um, if Morrell spends time also filling in at other positions. Center field would be another place to look. After Cubs center fielders combined to post a basically league average 90 WRC+, Christopher Morrell was probably the best offensive performer here this year, but his future seems to lie either more as an infielder, where third base is his natural position, or as a super utility guy in the vein of Ben Zobrist. Brennan Davis may play his way into Chicago next year if he can get through a productive and healthy season in the Arizona Fall League. But as with Mervis, expecting the Cubs to be able to make a jump in performance on the back of a rookie playing in the bigs for the first time is a huge thing to ask. Unless Davis just tears up the AFL and then does the same in spring training, look for him to either start in Iowa or be up in Chicago, but not necessarily starting every day in center field. Nelson Velazquez is another option, but he might be better off starting in Iowa and getting more reps in the minors. Catcher could be an area where the Cubs look, but unless they wind up with Contreras back, there really aren't many catchers that hit at all like Wilson, and those guys are expensive and locked down by good teams, such as Philadelphia's JT Realmudo. 
Look for the Cubs to add a veteran to back up or share time with Jan Gomes and bridge the gap to the point where maybe Miguel Amaya can contribute. Possibilities could include Omar Narvaez or Christian Vasquez. P.J. Higgins had a good stretch of plate appearances midseason and has nice positional versatility, but he just hasn't really hit and hasn't been strong defensively behind the plate. So, again, we'll see. A lot of question marks. So looking only at guys on the current 40-man roster and assuming no offseason moves, which is obviously not going to be the reality, the Cubs would go into 2023 with a lineup of Gomes and Higgins at catcher, which is probably good for an 85 to 90 WRC plus, which would be a big drop at that position for the Cubs in 2023. Rivas and Wisdom splitting first base with maybe Mash Mervis on his way. That's probably a 95 WRC plus, which would be a small bump up from last year. Not quite the dumpster fire the position was this year. Madrigal, McKinstry, and Morrell would probably combine at second base. Probably good for around 100, 105 WRC+. plus. This would be a huge upgrade, but obviously it's contingent upon Nick Madrigal being healthy, Zach McKinstry continuing to hit like he's hit lately, and then Morrell to play some time over there. Nico Horner at shortstop would likely project to 110 to 115 WRC+. Plus. I think he has every chance to be better next year than he was this year. This year, he really came on a lot. I mean, he probably peaked a month ago, but he's playing a super demanding position at shortstop, and this is the healthiest he's been in his whole career, so he's played probably as many games as he ever has in his entire career. It makes sense he's hitting a wall, and that'll give him something to go into the offseason with to continue to work out, get stronger, and get better. I think there's a lot to like from him going forward. I think you'd have Morrell and Wisdom splitting time at third base. That's probably good for a 105 WRC+. Plus. Uh, Morrell's been above that this year, and that's right around where Wisdom has been. Those two combining would probably give you a bump at third base over what the production they've had this year. Ian Happ would return to left field, and it's reasonable to expect a similar year to this year, which would be about a 115 WRC+. Plus. A chance to get better, but I think at this point, I think we see who he is. He's a guy who plays good defensive left field borderline great defensive left field and he's hitting the ball from both sides of the plate and providing a little bit of power right now center field looks like a bit of a mess you're probably looking at a committee of guys without making off-season additions maybe an 85 to 90 wrc plus offensively that could improve if christopher morrell plays out there a lot um and maybe nelson velasquez kind of matures maybe brennan davis comes into the position but i i think to expect brennan davis to walk in and be an above average hitter is would be unfair to brennan davis Seiya Suzuki seems set in right field, and I think he'll have every chance to improve on the season he had this year. I mean, he, he might be better than 120-plus WRC-plus next year. So far, I haven't talked much about designated hitter. The Cubs are going to have a decision to make on Fran Mel Reyes, who came in hot after the Cubs claimed him from the Guardians, but he's fallen off pretty significantly since. David Ross has said multiple times that there are some mechanical things in his swing that the Cubs think they can fix. If they do, Fran Mel's a guy who has had multiple 120-plus WRC-plus seasons with big power in Cleveland. But playing at the level he's playing at now, he's also a potential huge bus guy. If not Reyes or Contreras in this spot, look for the Cubs to play matchups and maybe not have a set designated hitter. One thing you can see looking position by position, this team definitely needs more pop. Patrick Wisdom has power, but he's hitting 210, and he hasn't hit for as much power as last year. Ian Happ has some power, but... Is for as good a season as he had, his power numbers have actually been a little bit down this year. You know, Wilson Contreras has a lot of power, but he'll be taking that with him if he does leave. I think we'll see a little more pop from Seiya Suzuki next year, especially if he can stay healthy and stay in the lineup all season. But one of the big problems and one of the things driving that lack of pop has been a lack of depth in the lineup. They have good hitters, but not enough to make the lineup a total gauntlet for pitching. 
Look back at that 2016 Cubs lineup. Any given day, pitchers had to get through Dexter Fowler, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, Ben Zobrist, Miguel Montero, Javi Baez, Addison Russell, etc. That's a lot. You know, any any of those guys could take you out of the ballpark. Any of those guys could get just scorching hot at any time. They were also mixing in a young Kyle Schwarber. They were mixing in a young Wilson Contreras. This year, the Cubs haven't even had Hap, Contreras, Horner, Suzuki, and Morrell all in the same same lineup at the same time very often. So the Cubs definitely need a couple big bats, and ideally one of them would be a lefty. That's not necessarily essential, but the Cubs are very right-handed heavy at this point. So what are some options? Let's look at some of the options out there and, and talk about what might make sense. The big position this year in free agency is shortstop. There's a very clear top four. They're all elite bats, and they're all going to be in high demand this offseason. There's a clear top four expected to be available as shortstop. In whatever order you take them, there's Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, and Dansby Swanson. Each of these guys brings their own strengths, but any one of these guys would be an enormous upgrade to the Cubs lineup. At third base, Nolan Arenado could opt out of his contract in St. Louis. After him, it's guys like Jace Peterson, Brandon Drury, or Matt Duffy. Outfield is interesting. There's Aaron Judge, who's obviously put up a massive historical season with 60-plus home runs in New York. He'll be a hot commodity. Then guys like Brandon Nimmo, Andrew Benatendi, Jock Peterson, and Mitch Haniger will, will all get attention. The Cubs should have some flexibility in the outfield, as Ian Happ can play a solid center field. So they don't necessarily have to go get a center fielder. They could get a corner guy and potentially shift Happ into left or set up or shift Happ into center and play with some rotations with Vasquez and Morrell potentially as well. The second base pool is pretty weak, so that's probably not somewhere the Cubs are going to look hard in free agency unless they find a depth guy they like to bring in on a cheap deal. Um, first base does have some very interesting possibilities. Jose Abreu, who's going to be 36 next year, just continues to hit on the south side. He'll be available. Josh Bell is probably the best and youngest of the available first basemen. He'll be 31 next year and would seem to have a number of productive years ahead of him. Brandon Belt and Yuli Gurriel are both older as well. They're likely to be available. Any of those guys except for Bell are probably totally available on short deals. Um, so if they come in for just a couple of years, that still leaves plenty of room for Matt Mervis to develop, start contributing at the major league level, and you know take over in a timely way. So how much will the Cubs have to spend? The Cubs are probably going to be around $112 million to spend on new payroll this year before hitting against the luxury tax threshold. The Cubs have gone over the luxury tax threshold in the past, but I wouldn't expect them to this year, unless it's to add pieces at the deadline in 2023. As an aside, I constantly hear on Twitter, read on Twitter, hear people talk about the Cubs not spending. They dumped payroll the last year and a half. There's no doubt about that. They didn't spend this year as much as they, I think they probably could have or should have. But that window the Cubs had where they were winning division championships, making the playoffs, five out of six years, three straight NLCS appearances, a World Series ring from 2015 to 2020, they did spend money. They were over the luxury tax threshold several of those years. Now, we can all argue that maybe they should have spent more even still, but those were not cheap Cubs teams. They they were up in the top five, top ten of payrolls in baseball. Now, personally, I think with the revenues they generate, with the gem that is Wrigleyville, with the marquee network, there's really no reason for the Cubs probably to ever be outside the top five in payroll in baseball. 
But with uh, the transition to a younger team, it made some sense this year. Um, but I hope the Cubs get back to spending. Out of the $112 million, the Cubs are going to have to pay arbitration-eligible players bigger deals. So look for Adrian Sampson and Ian Happ in particular to get nice pay bumps. They'll also have to cover all the 40-man roster depth, which will consist of pre-arbitration players making at or near the league minimum of $720,000. That probably leaves the Cubs with seventy to $80 million to spend in new pickups. So where does that go? The Cubs have been widely reported to be very interested in the shortstop market, and who knows, maybe they'll even make a run at Aaron Judge. Look for them to also add a starting pitcher, potentially someone like Carlos Rodon, to take a spot at the front of the rotation. Trades are also on the table, and I did spend almost an entire episode making the case for Shohei Otani. Otani is now locked in at $30 million for 2023 after the Angels and Otani agreed to terms, and then he would be a free agent in 2024. As I said previously, if Otani is traded in the offseason, look for the team trading for him to lock him up. If he's traded, I don't think he's ever going to hit free agency. The Cubs could deal for him now and fit his $30 million in while also adding one of the top shortstops, and then plan on taking Jason Hayward's $23 million and adding it to Otani's contract going forward after 2023, plus maybe even a little bit more. Either way, the Cubs definitely have room for at least two big ads, plus some other smaller pickups. So let's look at what some offensive pickups would do for the current lineup. Let's just start with shortstops, since the Cubs seem likely to make a hard run and have a lot of money to spend. Looking at all four of those guys, if you roughly average them out across the board, you wind up with a composite player that should give you a 128 WRC+, plus, 5-6 to six wins above replacement, and a 350-plus WOBA, all of which are top-shelf numbers. The Cubs could have that player play shortstop, which would then move Nico Horner, if Nico is moved back to second, he'd be near elite level in both offense and defense at the position. It would put Madrigal back to more of a utility player bench-type bat, which might be realistic given his recent injury history. That probably puts Morel more at third base. With the shift gone next year and defenses having to play a more traditional alignment, a defense of Rivas at first base, Horner at second base, the new shortstop, and then Morel at third base is a really athletic infield that could cover a lot of ground. The Cubs could also look at moving the new shortstop to third base, which would leave Nico at short and put Morrell, Madrigal, or McKinstry in at second base. Again, it would be very good defense and team speed, plus a significant offensive upgrade. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Judge, as I think he'll likely stay in New York, but he'd obviously be a massive upgrade in center field and would likely be the only thing that could keep the Cubs from going after one of the star shortstops. Otani, however, is still absolutely fascinating to me. He fills two cub holes. He's a top-level starting pitcher that would slot in immediately as the team's ace, and he's an elite lefty power bat that could DH virtually every day. With that $30 million price tag locked in this year and Hayward's money coming off the books, the Cubs definitely have the resources built in to get him signed long-term. Think something like eight years at something like $50 million or more per year. And they could get him and also go for one of the top shortstops. It's hard to say for sure what the lineup would be if the Cubs did get Otani plus a shortstop, because Nico Horner might have to be part of an Otani trade. But if the Cubs could actually get Otani with a package of guys that doesn't include Horner, now you're cooking. A lineup that has the new star shortstop, Shohei Otani, Nico Horner, Ian Happ, Seiya Suzuki, and Christopher Morrell is so much better than what they had this year, especially with Otani now headlining the rotation. The lineup could get even deeper if the Cubs could also add a shorter-term deal with a first baseman or add an outfielder. 
adding a Brandon Nimmo or Andrew Benintendi type to the outfield and or a Jose Abreu, Yuli Gurriel at first base could actually get this lineup into the upper half of baseball without actually blocking the paths for any of the younger guys at the higher end of the minors. It's been a lot of fun watching this team compete in the second half, and this team has shown it can win some games, even being shorthanded in the bullpen with a weak offense and surprises in the rotation. I think the team is putting pressure on the front office and ownership to make bold moves. This year, the Cubs had a lot of questions, but it's going to be harder and harder to sell another, quote, maybe season without a clear plan. Let's be clear about what this season was. It was a punt. It was an absolute punt. It was a bridge to what could be the next good Cubs team. That's okay for a year. It's okay for a year as the Cubs had guys they wanted to give more runway and as they finished the transition away from the 2016 core. But fans likely won't support another. Even this year, fans saw it for what it was. Attendance is down to levels not seen since 1997, and marquee ratings were down 20% year over year. As great as Wrigley Field is, those numbers won't improve if the Cubs don't make moves to compete. I said in the beginning that I saw the needle Jed was trying to thread, but this team was never built with the depth necessary to make that work. It was going to take luck, and that luck didn't come through. I'll also add that it's in the Ricketts family's best interest to compete, no matter which way you look at this. Attendance, TV ratings, and merchandise sales all improve if the Cubs are exciting and have star power. But they've also bought up huge chunks of Wrigleyville, and a hot Cubs team sells beer and cocktails in the area bars. It fills the hotels, it fills the area restaurants, and it fills their sports book. The Cubs probably won't head to spring training with Shohei Otani, Trey Turner, and Aaron Judge. But there's really no excuse for them not to make a splash and add at least one big star and potentially two. That would still leave them with some room for a couple veteran arms in the bullpen, some additional bench depth, and a second starting pitcher, perhaps bringing back Drew Smiley. Tom Ricketts, we're watching and we're waiting. There's a buzz starting and a lot to be excited about. The Cubs have young pitching depth like I've never seen and other exciting players on the way. They have plenty of depth to be aggressive on the trade market without gutting the system and they have a huge amount of cash to spend. The Cubs haven't been in this position since they signed John Lester. It's time to make that splash again. Thank you for spending time with me today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at CubsPSPlus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS+. Plus. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!